We live in a very, very unjust world, a world full of horrendous divisions, dispossessions, uh, segregation, stigmas, injustices, poverty, uh, hunger, children separated from their parents. So there is every day something that each of us can do in some small way. It doesn't have to be uh, becoming a Mother Teresa or, or, or some big shot or trying to tackle all the world's problems at once. But right in front of us every day when we leave our front doors, even before we leave our front doors, I think there are purposeful and meaningful things that each of us can do. Welcome to The Enrichment Project, Path to Purpose, recorded by the mad talent at Solid Gold Podcast. It is a series of unfiltered and insightful conversations with some of the most remarkable purpose-driven human beings who have all achieved, created, inspired, triumphed or challenged. And we have a great deal to learn from them. It is a quest to uncover and articulate the steps along the way to help you on your own journey of purpose. I am your host, Richard Wright, and I am delighted to have you with me Thank you for the gift of your time. Let's dive straight in. Thank you for joining me. This is one of those moments in life when you want to pinch yourself and you want it to last forever. It's a chat I've been looking forward to for a very long time. To say that I'm thrilled is an understatement. Um, so I'd like to welcome into the studio with me today is retired Justice Edwin Cameron. Um, he is also well, currently the uh, inspecting judge of prisons as well as the chancellor of Stellenbosch. Uh, we're going to have an amazing time together. We've got lots of ground to cover, but welcome, Edwin. Great joy to be with you, Richard. Thank you. So, Edwin, you probably don't know this. In fact, you won't know this. Is I was destined for a career in, in the legal field. I went to university and I studied at Rao and I studied a BA law. And about two and a half years in, I decided this really just wasn't me. This, this didn't really fit in with my sense of purpose. And there are two things that I think are worth mentioning. So number one is I landed up working at the Supreme Court. So that's our high court that was called the Supreme Court um, as a judge's clerk. And I worked for two judges, Judge Pretorius and Judge Van Skolkweg. And Judge Pretorius, that was particularly hectic, a criminal judge. And part of what really put me off was the very graphic and gruesome details of these crimes that have been committed and how long it took to get through a single case. And I just sat there thinking, wow, I, I, number one, I don't think I could do this. And as much as I wanted to go into labor law, it just didn't resonate with me as a human being. I just thought I, I couldn't. Um, so I want to get into some of that a little bit later is, is you've been exposed to a lot in your career and um, there must be some sort of toll that that has placed and, and that's something I would definitely like to delve into a little bit later. Can I just say very quickly, Richard? Yes, you may, please. Now, just to say that in that way, our paths were parallel because I also jumped away from law around about my third year and only came back to it later. And for many of the same reasons, I also, during my Stellenbosch vacation, was a judge's registrar, also sat through some terrible murder trials, which gave me pause. But eventually I found my way back and we can explore that. But that your decision was well warranted and well considered and quite rational, I, f I fully grant you. 
<laughs> Thank you very much. So the second thing I want to say is that this is the highlight of my legal career. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. Um, but before we go any further, the question I want to ask you is what gives you purpose? Richard, you know, I've read your book. Thank you. Which is a moving, grueling, challenging and inspiring book. And everyone has to have a purpose. Some people find it in uh, a supernatural being, in uh, metaphysical values or, or a presence. For me, I'm very respectful of people who find it there. For me, uh, a purpose is very much contingent, meaning that it just so happens that we are here. If we weren't here, there might not be the same pressures on us. For me, my purpose in life feels like making myself useful and making myself useful feels like giving my life meaning. Now, uh, there's a lot of ways in which one can qualify that. But the contingency that I referred to is that we live in a very, very unjust world, mm. a world full of horrendous divisions, dispossessions, uh, segregations, stigmas, injustices, poverty, uh, hunger, children separated from their parents. So there is every day something that each of us can do in some small way. It doesn't have to be uh, becoming a Mother Teresa or, or, or some big shot or trying to tackle all the world's problems at once. But right in front of us every day when we leave our front doors, even before we leave our front doors, I think they are purposeful and meaningful things that each of us can do. Thank you. Um, that's a great answer. And as you were saying, one doesn't have to be a Mother Teresa. I, I wanted to put in there or an Edwin Cameron. Um, and then you continue to say a big shot. Um, and and what, what, what I love is the fact that you have this career that has brought you to where you are right now, where you have made a very big difference in a lot of lives. You've made some, you've been instrumental in some huge, huge legislature and changed lives, but it didn't start there. And exactly as you've mentioned, it just starts with those little things that we do that can make a difference and make somebody else's life better. But I want to go right back to the beginning and um, let's chat about your life. So a number of the things that you mentioned there in terms of the poverty, in terms of children that have been removed from parents um, are very close to home. Um, please tell us a little bit about, about your beginnings. Well, Richard, I was born white, and that's relevant because it was in apartheid South Africa five years after the white supremacist government, the National Party government, came to power in 1948. I was born in 1953. There'd always been white domination and segregation and deprivation of, of equality in South Africa. But from 1948, it became highly rigorous, highly systematized, and highly ruthless. Mm. So... I grew up white, but I came from a fractured family. Uh, my parents couldn't care for my sisters and me, and we ended up in the Presbyterian Children's Home in Queenstown. I spent four and a half years there. My sister Jeannie spent five years there. And so in that way, I discovered poverty because we really did have hard times. And I mention this not to say, RG, oh, feel sorry for me, but simply as an important informative and enriching experience in my life. Mm. But the critical thing, uh, Richard, was that I discovered that 
my white skin would help me to get out of poverty. I, I was a hardworking, nerdy kid. I worked very, very hard. I excelled early in the children's home primary school at Queenstown. Sure. Uh, I showed that I could be top of the class. So I did have uh, academic promise. Mm -hmm. uh, but a young kid from a poverty-stricken background with academic promise at that point also needed to be white in most instances yeah. in order to escape the poverty trap. And my escape was at Pretoria Boys High, an outstanding secondary school, mm. government-funded secondary school in Pretoria. From Pretoria Boys High, all white. I went to Stellenbosch, all white. I got a Rhodes Scholarship. At the time I got the Rhodes Scholarship, there had never been a, a black South African elected. The first African black South African was Louisa Nonwa, who became a very close friend of mine two years after I was elected. So uh, all of that to say that uh, my, my first two founding experiences were a sense of deprivation and the desire to fight against exclusion and deprivation and the, the burden of poverty, but also realizing later that the way I got out of poverty was highly conditioned by the racist society in which I grew up. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's so much been said, especially lately. Um, and as a white person, it really takes something, how many years later, to still have to look yourself in the mirror and say, I am the product of privilege. And no matter the arguments that come back at me, and you're just such a wonderful example of, there's so many things that you could say that, that you know, you've had it worse and you were, you know, your, your childhood really sucked to a large extent but yet you still had this thing called privilege purely because of the color of your skin. But it was more than that. Richard, can, can we, before we go on, yeah. and, and I, I want to hear what your observation is about more than that, but at every crucial step in my life, I was helped by intervention of other people. In the children's home, a year or two after we went there, my sister Jeannie and I were in a boarding house in Bloemfontein awaiting our return to Queenstown. It was her birthday. We had nothing in the house. And a well-dressed woman came to the boarding house. She parked her smart car outside. She was wearing gloves, smart high heels. She asked to see the Camerons. I said, we were the Camerons. She handed me an envelope. 1963, 10 rand. In today's money, around about 900 rand. It was phenomenal. My sense of amazement, we could buy things to go back to Queenstown. We could buy a cake for Jeannie. One rand 80 of the 10 rand was spent on, on, on birthday celebrations. Never blame uh, resource poor people for taking some part to celebrate life. Yeah. So this lady left a very deep impression on me. We never knew who she was. My mum came back. She saw this beautiful 10 rand note in this envelope. We didn't know who it was or why she had done it. A disinterested random act of well-directed kindness. Yes. Pretoria boys are the same. The school, the headmaster realized that I was from a very uh, impoverished background, unlike the affluent kids, 99% of whom were at Pretoria Boys High. Mm. And they quietly helped us with some handouts from time to time. So I'm very deeply under the impression, I, at Pretoria Boys High, one, one of the schoolmasters, Hugo Ackerman, he and his family adopted me. 
So, Richard, that sense of connection, that mm. sense of community bonding and reaching out has helped me give my life the sense of purpose that you asked me about at the outset. Uh, that's just simply remarkable. So, so, so there are a lot of things I would like to unpack here. So, so number one, I think it's my, my gut tells me that it's relatively rare that somebody out of your circumstances doesn't go through a very tough stage of rebelling and anger and withdrawal. Um, but that isn't your story. It's such a delightfully enticing leading opening that you're giving me there, Richard, because I've never quite thought of my life about that quite that way. I think one of the further contingencies that conditioned me was the fact that at about 14 or 15, to my complete horror, I realized that I was different from the other boys. Uh, okay. I listened to a radio program called The Broken Link, and they spoke about homosexuals. But they whispered it. And to my complete, yes, to my complete aghastness, I recognized myself. And I vowed that I would never, ever in my whole life acknowledge this. I would never mm. give in to it. I would never be a homosexual. So inordinate was the millennia of stigma and hatred and repression, mm. which are mostly monotheistic societies had impressed on people, LGBTIQ people, queer people like myself. So I'm relating that to your very interesting question, because I thinking on the on the spur of the moment about what you said, I think that as a gay person, you are dealing with this inner shame, this inner, uh, the, the revolt of your erotic and emotional needs mm. against your desire to 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 be secret, to conform, and to achieve. Mm. So I think that was 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 part of why I didn't rebel uh, in 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 the way that I think you very intriguingly raised. You've made it this far, probably because the topic resonated with you. If you're wondering what the show is all about, listen to the trailer at the start of the season and find out how this show is going to help you along your own path to purpose. You've stumbled on a project that is all about purpose. Find out why the guests are all so vastly different, but yet all have so much in common. Hop on board this journey with me, follow the Enrichment Project so that you don't miss out on a single episode and share it with, well, everyone. We are all looking for more meaning in our lives. If the show speaks to your identity or the identity of your brand, consider sponsoring a season. Let's make the circle bigger. Back to the episode and thanks for listening. There's such an interesting link between identity and purpose. And from what I've discovered through these interviews and through my own thoughts and readings is that so often purpose is that thing that we discover when we look behind us, when we join up the, the breadcrumbs that we've left behind and we, we put them back together again and say, oh, wow, that was, that's a loaf of bread. And, you know, I don't think we, very few people set out with this idea of this thing, this big thing. And so much of this shapes us. But the question I wanted to delve into now, and that is an interesting one for me in terms of your legal career. What happened to your dad when you were little, which prompted some of or the, that journey towards the, the landing up in Queenstown? As I've said, we came from a severely fractured family. My father was 
not just alcohol dependent, he was a catastrophic alcoholic. Mm -hmm. He was one who denied that he had any problem. He was a capable, sensitive, intelligent man, a trained artisan, uh, an electrician, mm -hmm. uh, a man who loved words. Uh, I, I, I can weep for the tragedy of his life. He, uh, as a youngster, uh, barely 17 years old, he went and fought in North Africa, was taken as a prisoner of war in Italy, and he wasn't able to care for us. So between his, his repression and his own burden of his past, he would engage in catastrophic alcoholic bouts every now and then. And uh, he would lie in the gutter, sell uh, our household goods, lose his job. He would always get, for, for a white man in the 1950s and 60s, there was always an artisan's job. Might have changed now, but there was always at that time because of job reservation and, and work privileging of whites. And he'd lose his job. So we led this peripatetic existence from all four provinces of the then South Africa. And eventually when my parents' marriage broke up entirely, he disappeared. Mm. We later learned that he disappeared because he'd been arrested and sentenced for car theft. And he was sent to Sondervata prison uh, in Pretoria. Mm -hmm. One of the prisons that I visited this year, well, the first prison that I visited after President Ramaphosa appointed me uh, as, as inspecting judge of prisons happened to be Sondervata. Mm. And the prison official leading our inspection of all the sections of Sondervata said, those were the cabins for Italian of war prisoners, which were used for white men in the 1950s and 1960s as a prison. So as inspecting judge of prisons, many years later, 60 years later, I was able to go and see the place where my father was incarcerated in 1959-60-1961. And the, re the way I realized what had happened was that a terrible family tragedy be uh, befell us just before I turned eight, mm -hmm. when my sister Jeannie was on her uh, uh, 11th birthday. My elder sister, our elder sister, Laura, was killed in a cycling accident. Sure. And at her funeral, my father entered the proceedings, we were wondering whether he had come. My mother didn't say anything. She didn't explain anything. Mm. And indeed, he did come. But he came between two uniformed warders. They let him out for the funeral of his elder daughter. And it was then that I realized the law can be incredibly harsh. The law can be repressive. The law can judge you like I later feared the law would judge me. Mm as a homosexual man, but I also realized that the law could also be a system of values, a system of norms, a, a, a structure to create greater dignity and, and to, to create greater power and equality amongst people. So it's a long way to answer your question, Richard, mm. from Laura's funeral at the beginning of 1961 to uh, later becoming a lawyer, but that was the arc that it took. Becoming a lawyer only after the same sort of doubts that, that you and I shared, and rightly shared, I think, because I still have misgivings about the law. Sure. So there's a, a quote I came across from you is, my aim was to show the law as an oppressor, as the imprisoner of my father, as something that should be applied to social justice ends. 
And that, out of a lot of things I've read about you, that really has stood out because that's exactly what you just said now. That that's a lot in one sentence, and a law from very many sides. Um, and we're going to get to your current role because um, there's some there's some wonderful wonderful content I want to get into there. Richard, can I just say something that can I yes, interrupt yes, you? Yes, anytime. Just before we went on to air, uh, your partner said to me he's very nervous, and we all chuckled about that. I've also been feeling very uh, quite stressed about this interview because how does one speak meaningfully about purpose? And just while we're sitting here, it, it's just occurred to me that to transform grief and pain mm. uh, into meaning is, is what can give one purpose. Yes. I'm not saying it's what the purpose is, but it's one answer because I've been grappling with, with this over the last few weeks while we've been preparing for today. Mm. And I think. If everyone, some people many, 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 many manifold times more than others, experience suffering, grief, deprivation, anguish, but if you can transform that into an energy that can help you relate to others, maybe help you assist others, maybe make your life meaningful mm -hmm. in an instrumental way to offer your life to others, uh, I think that possibly underlies my quest for purpose in my life. I understand that completely. So, so the first time I went into remission on my cancer journey, I landed up, as you would have read in the book, and thank you very much for reading my book, that's a huge compliment. I landed up in the, uh, an oncology ward, pediatric oncology ward on Christmas day in Port Elizabeth. And mm. um, that was tough for me. I felt like I was, uh, I had survivor's guilt. Um, this trauma that I've been through, this thing that had robbed me of so much of myself had taken away my identity and, and given me something different. And it was hard to accept that. And I know you've got some very similar stories, which we're going to get into. And it took me almost a year and a half after that to cognitively and intentionally decide that I wanted to make my life mean more by helping other people to become survivors. And but for a year and a half, I ran away from that because it was just too close to my own experiences. It was just too close to, um, I'm trying to fight and beat cancer and, and um, now I'm gonna surround myself with children who've got cancer. And, and that guilt was quite big. And I think for me, part of that, that meaning of my life is turning the guilt into, okay, but I can make a difference. So yes, I survived and I survived for a reason. And that is, I think, exactly what, you, what, what you're talking about. And um, in fact, I've written down quite a lot here that is going to relate to this a little bit further along. So I think that that's, and you're putting some of the pieces together for me. So I would imagine, and I can only speak for myself, that in that instance that I would feel anger towards my dad who, who had um, left myself and my sister, um, losing my other sister, my mom having to cope on her own because of my dad's issues, and then landing up with no parents, um, Yo, to come back from that and turn it around and land up where you are now, that, that's a remarkable life. That really is. Um, can you talk to me about some of those struggles? Or, or, or is it, that hurt, do those scars, do they remain? Are they still there? Is it a part of you? Richard, you know, I want to pause for a moment with what you've just said because uh, the, the grief, the passion, the pain, the devastation of the way cancer beset your body and the way you really fought against it, fought against it, so, not just tenaciously, but monstrously. Uh, you, 
it's too glib to say you vanquished it, but all the marathons, all the endurances, all the achievements, and it wasn't just cancer. There, 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 there were personal setbacks in your relationship, in your fatherhood, your parenthood, legal setbacks. I just want to pause there because um, I, I like the way you've summed it up, that you, you've got to ask, is there meaning in this for me? And I don't work from a faith framework, though I deeply respect friends and colleagues and loved ones and, and others who do. For me, I think the meaning is, is in the way that it enables you to understand. I, as a, as a gay man, you as a straight man who has, I've never had cancer, I've had AIDS. Uh, I've never lain in a pediatric ward, but I've been in circumstances where uh, I've, I've felt devastated also by survivor's guilt as someone who in Africa has, has tens of millions of people faced certain death from AIDS. I was given the privilege of antiretroviral treatment very early on, uh, barely 18 months after its existence was announced. So that survivor's guilt is not something I've ever thought before, but it also impelled me to fight, to join Zaki Ahmad's treatment action campaigns fight for just access and just availability for all people in Africa. So to try to summarize the point, uh, what the suffering, the meaning of suffering for me, the meaning of the type of experiences that you had is that it enhances your humanness. Would that we could be fully human without suffering. Would that we could have the insights I've got from AIDS and from suffering stigma and fear as a gay man and oppression as someone uh, living with HIV, would that you could have had all of that without the difficulties of upbringing and parenthood and, and cancer that you've had. But I do think that they make us more humbly aware of the suffering in the world, of the way that we can relate to other suffering, and then thirdly, the way in which just possibly, we might do something meaningful, like your book, writing a book that uh, inspires others, that tells others how you got through cancer and, and how you've given your life purpose. This set of podcasts and, and YouTube videos, uh, to me, that is, you've lit a candle, you've lit many candles in the darkness of suffering. And anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling quite moved now, but I, I, and, and we, we, I think we should get back to our questions. But I think that's true. And it's true for me too, Richard, because I'm not a, a woman who has suffered oppression or the risk of rape or the experience of rape. I'm not a black person who has suffered the indignities of, of my life mattering less than a white life. Uh, since uh, my childhood, I've not been a poor person. Uh, we've got many poor people who, especially after the lockdown and COVID, are suffering food insecurity and the real risk of hunger. But what I've experienced has given my life meaning in, that, in, in telling me you can't just withdraw, you can't just live in comfort, you can't sit back on the cushions and say, I'm okay, because that capacity for empathetic understanding calls you to a duty. 
I've never said those things before, but, but that's because you've challenged me over the last few weeks to, to think of this awful word purpose. And your book is called The Power of Purpose. <laughs> Calls you to a duty. Um, well, so I, I just want to say I see you. I, I really do see you. Um, and you're an amazing human being. You're a mensch. There's one thing I want to touch on there, and that is that uh, I've often been asked the question, Richard, if you could go back to who you were before cancer, and that's who you were, but you never had to go through the last four years of your life, or otherwise you had to go through the last four years, but you are who you are now. And it's an easy question to answer when you're in remission, um, easy question to answer when you are no longer you know, negative, but uh, positive, sorry. But the answer is no. I love what this journey has forced me to confront within myself and um, I, I too feel like I've been called for a task. So one thing I want to say, and, and I love this quote, um, when you wrote about your first book, the first book was agony. Every word was anguish, writing about stigma, infection, recovering from it. And you too have written a number of books. You're a prolific author. First one was about your journey um, and, and what that was about. And the second one about your time on the bench. And um, one is in the post on its way to me and the other one I know I'm going to get. Um, yay. But that, that sharing, absolutely. And that, that journeying and be, being prepared to be vulnerable and open is exactly what you know, lighting that candle is all about. So let's just go back. You're 15, right? And you have identified for the first time that you are different, that there's something different. And it's this terrible feeling. I can never admit that. Tell me more about that journey and how you got, when you finally got to that place of, I can actually go public with this. Um, tell me about that. Mm. Richard, I, I really grappled. I, I dated women. I uh, eventually got married for a, a short and catastrophic time. Mm. And when my marriage broke up, it was a, an enormous life crisis. And I was about to turn 30. And I came to a profound realization, which has helped me with my advocacy for LGBTIQ equality, which is this isn't something that you choose or adopt or can change or have a, a volition over. This was something, if you come from a faith framework, this is the way God made me. Transgender people, you can say they change, they don't. They want to be the way they feel in a faith framework that God made them. And we are called to respect that. And so that sense that this was something innate to me, it, it was definitional of me, it was a constituent part of my most inner being, this queerness, this strangeness, this attraction to men, this emotional affinity for men, the search for connection, through a male partner, mm. not an opposite sex partner. Just at the time I was turning 30, I thought, what the hell? No, never. I will never, ever apologize again. It was mm. the end of 1982 in homophobic, repressive South Africa. Uh, I was in my first male involvement, mm -hmm. and I was about to start as an advocate at the Johannesburg Bar deeply homophobic society, some uh, sure. closeted gay men there, uh, some closeted women. I, I, did, I knew fewer of them than the men I knew. And that was when I came out. I gave my first public speech mm -hmm. at a gay event in the middle of 1984 at the first 
gay film festival in, in South Africa. It was at a hotel very close to Park, uh, a very, very glitzy hotel. What was it called? It'll occur to me now. Yeah. Uh, I've still got the notes from that speech. It's in the Gay and Lesbian Archive Gala. But the important connection, Richard, to make now is that my marginalization as a gay man mm-hmm. and the realization that I had to fight against unjust laws was for me part of the struggle against all of South Africa's exclusionary, marginalizing, stigmatizing, subordinating unjust laws. And of course, at the same time that I was coming to terms with this, there was a young black man from Sebo King, Simon Tseko and Cordy, who uh, realized that he was gay, he wanted to celebrate his gayness, but he was also part of the anti-apartheid movement in Sebo King, and he joined in the uprising against apartheid in September 1984 in Sebo King. Simon, my paths crossed, they crossed again when he was imprisoned and put on trial for treason and murder. Uh, And he was accused number 13 in the Delmas treason trial. So uh, for me, becoming an anti-apartheid lawyer was an answer to the question that you said at the beginning. You felt a profound repugnance for the law. And I found a meaning in the law, which was to try to find pockets of justice amidst all the injustice. So in the 1980s, early 1990s, uh, I did anti-apartheid cases, Mm. conscription and religious objection cases, uh, land cases, treason cases for ANC guerrillas fighters. So it's a long answer to your question, Richard, but uh, my queerness resulted in a realization that I had to fight injustice. I had to uh, assert my, myself in the, in the same way that Steve Biko, whom I read for the first time while I was in Oxford, Steve Biko said, you've got to be proud of yourself as a black man. You don't get your dignity as a black person, man or woman, from white people. Correct. You know, they've got their own issues. Let them go and fight their own issues. That's why he broke away from the white liberals of Newsas. He said, black man, you're on your own. He, in today's lingo, he'd say, black man or woman, black person, you are on your yeah. own. And in a cognate way, that was true also for me for, as a queer man. I, I think actually, listening to that, that you were the, the perfect um, person, the perfect set of circumstances to become somebody who has been called jurist of the highest order, the greatest legal mind of his generation in a league of his own. It it was perfect in terms of what you were fighting on the inside. And I think, I think also, and just listening to you, there must surely have been some of that unfairness about your, about your childhood and, and having to suffer things that you couldn't control and were a victim of, and standing up for people who were also victims of anything unfair and oppression um, and not being allowed to be who they are or being judged for who they are. So that, that's a very powerful combination. So that was in the 80s, right? And then you, I think, I think if, if memory serves me correct, you, it was in, in interviews for the Constitutional Court that you came out and admitted that um, you had been, or you had had HIV AIDS. Is that right? 
Richard, yes, I, I came out as a gay man in the 1980s at the start of my legal practice. I became infected with HIV. It was a catastrophe because not only was it a certain death sentence in 1986 when my diagnosis was shared with me, mm. but it was the most shameful illness, the most stigmatized illness, I think, in human history and, and remains so. Sure. It's worse stigma than cancer. Yeah. Uh, although a worse stigma than tuberculosis, which also has a stigma. So I kept it a deep, dark secret. Mm. And, and understandably. I hoped I would never fall ill. It was like a second closet. Mm. And I thought that I felt ashamed of being infected with HIV because I'd come to a, a life-affirming self-realization, a self-ownership of my queerness and started in legal practice and then two years later got infected, allowed myself to be infected with HIV. I thought it was about my homosexuality and the way I got HIV. It was only when I met black women, mine workers' spouses, mm. who had reported that they'd only had one sexual partner, their spouses, the husbands on the mine who felt the same kind of stigma and shame and fear mm. that I felt through my work. I was advising Congress of South African Trade Unions, National Union of Mind Workers, headed then by Cyril Ramaphosa. I was advising them as a strong lawyer while keeping quiet the fact that I had this grief and anguish and fear and stigma inside myself as well. Sure. So to put it back to what you asked, Richard, I felt terribly ill with AIDS after I was made a judge, three years into being a judge. I felt very severely ill with AIDS. Uh, I had many, many of the crippling, defining conditions of AIDS, and I faced near certain death. The median survival time for a young 40-year-old, well-supported uh, person from a warm house and with good nutrition and, and life goals was 30 to 36 months, so I should have been dead by around about the middle of the year 2000. Instead of which I had access to antiretrovirals because of the, my salary as a judge. And all of that, so, so Richard, can I, can made I, it. Can I just stop you for two, two seconds? I just, want to, I just want to read something. This is just an amazing, amazing paragraph. And by the way, I, I wish I had use of the English language like you do, and I wish I could write like you do. It's, Quite something. Um, this is a. Don't do yourself down, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. Put that down. Um, having heard people say that they would kill themselves if they found out they were HIV positive, he found that he wanted to keep on living. I wanted my health back urgently. I wanted to breathe easily, freely again. And then the other paragraph I want to read here is the other part of my life was washing away beneath my feet. So. Richard, uh, to, to go back to what has brought us to this rather beautiful and emotional meeting this afternoon, uh, I was a white, privileged, professionally protected person with HIV in a continent of people infinitely less protected, privileged, and accessed than I was. And one of those people was a woman in Durban, in Komashu Township in Durban, Gugu Lamini. And Gugu, a year after I started on antiretrovirals, went on to a Zulu language radio station in KZN and 
spoke about living with HIV and was murdered by members of her own community three weeks later, just before Christmas in, in December 1998. And I realized that if Gugu could have the courage and the focus and the determination, the purpose to speak out about living with HIV, that I should do the same. And so as you've, you've rightly asked, I was being interviewed by the Judicial Service Commission for a post on the Constitutional Court. And with the support and approval, in fact, at the instance of the first Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court, Justice Arthur Jackson, I spoke about my HIV. And I made a statement, not just about HIV, but about the fact that I was privileged to have access to life-saving medication that should be available to all. And that the stigma was what was killing so many people. So I spoke about stigma, I spoke about prevention, I spoke about access to ARVs and, and the fight for justice in, in the HIV epidemic. And uh, in many ways, that experience brought very much of my life as a gay man who acquired HIV through gay sex and who'd experienced stigma and marginalization as a queer person. And then as a privileged white person who'd been able to become a judge and had the salary of a judge, could afford antiretrovirals on the continent when almost no one could. And then to be given my life back. I think I read some parts of your book uh, also, Richard, the realization that you could undertake endurance marathons. I mean, the stories you tell, the pictures in your book are deeply moving because uh, your tenacious fight against the uh, cancerous cells in your body and the medication and medical interventions you received are very analogous to what uh, antiretroviral treatment does, except, if I may say, that mm -hmm. ARV treatment is much easier. Once you're on the right combination, once you stick to it, it's very much easier than the survival fight for someone at risk of a, of a fatal cancer. So, Richard, I did speak out. Mm -hmm. I spoke out against stigma. I spoke out in favor of treatment access. And I spoke out in favor of justice for everyone with HIV. And of course, Richard, if I may say the last thing about this, the, the defining feature of this epidemic has been stigma. Mm. And it's still a disease of monstrous mounds and mountains of, of stigma and shame. Mm. Many of those are internalized where even when you are in a community or a, a workplace or a family or a loving relationship where no one will reject you. I mean, we seven and a half million people yeah. in South Africa who live in with HIV and AIDS. Mm. Nevertheless, because of internalized stigma, people feel ashamed yeah. to say, yes, I'm living with HIV or I'm on antiretrovirals. So I thought at the time I spoke out the question that we started this, this segment with, I thought that I would soon be joined, not by people like myself, gay white men in, in the judiciary. I thought I'd be joined by politicians, rap stars, soccer players, yeah. actors, uh, leaders, uh, and, and it hasn't happened. It's still a disease of yeah. un, uns, unspeakable and unspoken silence. Yeah. I think even worse is that at that time, uh, we had a government that was flat out denying Tabo Mbeki, and I know that you were very outspoken 
um that's so hard so here you are taking this fearless step uh into a very very scary world but was there also a little bit of relief on the other a, side a of fear, this? Fearful step. Sorry, fearful step. Fearful um, step. But, but wasn't there also a little bit of relief? <laughs> just the sigh of, I, this is a thing I don't have to keep in yes. anymore, and um, yes. it's out. Yes. The, oh. the, the, the greatest unburdening, the greatest relief of my life mm. was passing off the fear of controlling knowledge about my own HIV. Wow. Uh, giving it away. Yeah. and saying, I have no reason for shame. I have no reason to be stigmatized. This is just a virus. It's energized my life for the last yeah. uh, 21 years, uh, almost 22 years next year in, in April. Uh, I have been relieved and my energies have been given to me. Mm. Uh, so you're absolutely right. That is, that is so. And can I just say, Richard, mm. uh, the, the one thing I want to add to what you said about President Thabo Mbeki, his resistance to the science and treatment and etiology of AIDS were also rooted in shame and stigma because he was angry that on the only black continent in the world we had the only mass epidemic of HIV and he said this is white scientists who are trying to oh. peddle uh, false myths to us and they're telling us it's about our sexual behavior that we as black people are having sex with gay abandon Mm. He said that, uh, and of course, uh, it wasn't about blackness because there's no mass epidemic in West Africa. Don't tell me that the people in West Africa have less sex. And it's not about how often you have sex or how you have sex. It's about vulnerability to yeah. the receptors of HIV. And uh, they still don't know why we have an epidemic in Central and Southern Africa. Nowhere else a mass epidemic. And nowhere else in the world. Yeah. We know why gay men are particularly vulnerable because of particular facts about uh, insertive male-to-male uh, -male ejaculative sex. We know why injecting drug users because they put the needle right in. We don't know why the Bantu-speaking people of Central and Southern Africa have been so particularly vulnerable. It's not about yeah. sexual behavior. That's yeah, the yeah. fault that President Mbeki made. I think there's some other uh, genetic or environmental vulnerability that we will yeah. discover in due time. But the shame yes. is the point I'm making, yeah. the shame and the stigma. So and I, can't, I can't relate to that in that instance at all. The only way I can relate, and something else that you would have written in my book, is I think it's we, we all like this until we're on the other side, is that um, I used to judge people quite harshly and be very critical about people who, who had extramarital um, affairs or uh, were unfaithful and until that happened to me and um you write then, about that you write about that richard yes yeah, and then i denied it denied 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 because you know that's just what we do and um it's it was a if i look back now i'm ashamed of that and it's something that you sh i should have stood up straight away and admitted to and and you don't because of the stigma and the shame um and maybe if i i can get away with it or maybe i can hide it and maybe it doesn't have to come out and then when it does, when you do, um, and now it's something I'm, I'll happily speak about to anybody and, and in my, with my own children even saying, um, yeah, unfortunately that came out. Um, anyway, that's another story. But now I'm able to say to them, do you know, remember that time when dad did that and caused that massive hurt? Well, I made a mistake. And how do we act when we do that? What do, what do we do next? Uh, and that's really, really what counts. So. Yeah, in a, in a tiny way, I know it's nothing near um, I can relate.
That brings us to the end of part one of this fascinating, enthralling, deeply emotive and intense conversation. Um, Edwin, thank you very, very much. And we'll see you for the next one. Thank you. Thank you for staying right to the end of the episode and for joining me on the Enrichment Project. Before you go, please share this episode with your friends and your colleagues. They will thank you, I'm sure. Remember that you can catch each Path to Purpose episode by watching on YouTube or if you prefer, on your favorite podcast app. The link to my book, The Power of Purpose, is in the show notes. Please go and check it out. It's a rad account of my own story of purpose and resilience and my fight against brain cancer. I finished six full Ironman events, a number of multi-stage mountain bike races, nine Ironman 70.3 races, including the Ironman World Championships and a bunch of other endurance events, all with stage four brain cancer because I wanted it that badly and getting to the finish line meant that much to me. As a professional inspirational speaker, business and life coach, author and storyteller, I'd love to add more value to you or your organization. Please find more details on my website, IamRichardWright.com and book me today for a live or virtual keynote, a masterclass, workshop or coaching session or please follow my journey on Facebook, I am Richard Wright, Twitter, The Right Rich, Instagram, I am Richard Wright, or on LinkedIn. I'd love the opportunity to enrich your team. Thank you to the professional crew at Solid Gold Podcasts for the support, the talent, and the mad skills. And to Anna Hick for her creativity and genius video magic. Thank you. You all rock. Oh,